Hey now, welcome back to the Deadology Podcast from Pencil Hill Studio, New Paltz, New York. I'm your host, Howard Weiner. Today is January 22nd, 2024. This is Season 2, Episode 4 of the podcast. And today we'll be taking a, a time travel back to Augusta, Maine, October 11th and 12th, 1984, uh, with the 12th being an extraordinary show. And we're also going to examine the psychology of Grateful Dead set lists. So 1984 tour starts. I'm a student. I was probably working part-time somewhere, extremely part-time. Um, part-time just to make enough money for tickets and money for the tour. Uh, but I was, I was a student at Rockland Community College, Suffer, New York, and what a great time it was to be on that campus and to be a deadhead. The place was just packed with deadheads. I, I met so many people there exchanging tapes. Um, obviously, it's not as many people as a big university. Uh, the dead were huge on campuses back in the, uh, the early 80s in New York State, as I'm sure they were in the ensuing years. But this is really kind of where the deadhead movement of the 80s took off on these college campuses all throughout the United States, but it was especially uh, popular in, in New York with all the shows they were playing at uh, different colleges in the area. Um, but Rockland Community College, um, all, I, all I remember is meeting friends, uh, sitting in that parking lot before class, listening to tapes, exchanging tapes, uh, great time. Even at, um, for the movie night, they often had the Grateful Dead movie night there, at least um, once a month, so we would you know, go into the uh, uh, the theater in, in Rockland Community College, watch the Grateful Dead movie. Morning Dew would come on. We'd stand at attention like it was the national anthem. Uh, good times in Rockland, but uh, it's October 1984. The fall tour is about to start. It's about a week away, and in my psychology class, uh, I think this was the second psychology. It wasn't Psychology 101, but I can't remember what it was exactly. Um, I, get, I get to class, and for an hour and a half, I was just writing set lists down what the Grateful Dead were going to play on that tour. Uh, I'd start the page, Charlotte, October 5th, 1984, and then I would make up my set list. Not necessarily predictions, because you can never predict what the Grateful Dead were going to do, but I would take the same formula uh, they would use with, with the accordance of great, the Grateful Dead universe and the way they used to lay out sets. Um, I did an entire tour during my psychology class. Uh, the, the professor must have wondered what the hell I was doing because I was just writing notes nonstop like, like, like crazy. And what I did for these uh, set lists, I didn't do anything out of the realm of what might happen. Like I wouldn't start a set off with St. Stephen. I would basically use the rules of what, what songs fit into certain slots and create an entire tour. It was a good way to kill an hour and a half, but I was we were just people were so excited about going on tour back in those days. It was it, it was a world upon itself. Um, I mean, the Grateful Dead became more mainstream once Touch of Grey nineteen eighty seven came around. Then everybody uh, you know it was it was kind of open. You know, go see the Grateful Dead. There were stadiums, eighty thousand people could go see them. But it was really it was kind of like a special thing to be seeing the Grateful Dead in these small places like Augusta in 1984, because only a certain amount of people knew about it. And we kind of had such a brotherhood back then because the people who knew about it, you knew they had discerning tastes and, 
and awesome taste in music if they were going to catch the Grateful Dead, especially if they were doing a whole tour. So the um, the, the tour starts off, the actual tour, um, and I never kept the, the pages I wrote. I wish I had. I wish I had those uh, those pages just to have a good laugh and look at what I wrote. Uh, but the reality soon put the, the, the fantasy set list to rest. I never even, che- even checked back. Um, went to Charlotte and Richmond with my friend Perry. Uh, we had two other people in the back seat. Can't recall who they were. Uh, you know, and those, those shows were yeah, they okay. You know, they were they weren't that great, that memorable. Starting a tour. Um, so one night they do uh, Cat Rider Estimated Eyes. That was the first night. Charlotte, Richmond got a scroll of fire. Uh, you couldn't complain about that. That's pretty cool. But uh, the rest of the set list weren't that great. And I don't, the shows weren't that hot. I really haven't had a chance to check back too much over the years. Um, but so it's, it started off like less than impressive. I think the greatest memory I have, <laughs> it's incredible, the greatest memory I have from that that little tour. My friend Perry had a cold. He gets into my car with a Wallbaum's bag and a box of tissues. By the time he gets to Charlotte, it's a, a Wallbaum's bag full of tissues and um, yeah, so that probably tells you that, that there weren't that many great highlights at the shows. But uh, yeah, that was uh, part of the deal, man. You go see the Grateful Dead for a tour. Somewhere along that tour, you're dealing with a cold, uh, no matter how, how you caught it. And I, I got my cold. I was a little sick in Augusta. But I, the, the music definitely helped me overcome it on that night. So those are the first two shows, Charlotte and Richmond. Then they go to Worcester, Massachusetts. Their second time playing Worcester. They played there the the year before in 83. And boy, was my faith restored. On October 8th, they played a really good show, hot, cool song selection. And then October 9th, um, John Lennon's birthday. Um, and the Grateful Dead played awesome shows on October 9th for whatever reason. Uh, one of the great days in, in Grateful Dead history. Um, you go back to 76, the great Oakland show, they played Denver's 77, uh, just a whole, whole bunch of great shows on that day. Um, but this Worcester show, the set list was unreal beyond imagination. I never could have conceived of anything like this when I was sitting in that psychology class, putting a set list together. You know, they opened up with the dancing in the streets, big railroad, let it grow to end the first set, second set help on the way, Slipknot Franklin's Jack Straw. He's gone. First smokestack in 18 years since, since was it 18 years? 13 years since uh, Pig's passing. Um, they did a Throwing Stones, Stella Blue, instead of doing the Throwing Stones, Not Fade Away. Just incredible. Every turn was exciting at that show. And that was like, you know, that's definitely where the Grateful Dead came through, why we kept going back for those shows where they would just pull out these set lists beyond imagination, nothing you could have ever, ever thought of before they uh, hit the road. So um, going into Augusta, you know, they had a tough act to follow, uh, you know, after, after the Worcester shows. And we get to the October 11th show. And I, Augusta, Maine, about an hour north of uh, Portland. But before I, I go into that, I'm just going to mention my little trip to uh, to Augusta last year. Uh, I was writing my book, The Grateful Pilgrimage, where I went back to the entire 1983 tour on the anniversary dates. Um, so I was, I was in Portland, October 18th, 83 was the show. I was there 39 years later on the anniversary date. And my thing was to get inside the venues and listen to the show. And then I had an off day and I was going to pick another venue to go to in Augusta. 
And I, I was, I mean, when I was in Portland, I was going to pick something else in Maine. And I listened to that Uncle John's playing in the band Morning Dew. Um, I, I got the, the order wrong there. It was playing Uncle John's Morning Dew uh, from October 12th, 84. And I knew right away I had to go to Augusta. You know, that was, I, I had to see that building because that was one of the most incredible things I ever saw on my touring, touring day, that October 12th show. Uh, so I took the trip up to Augusta, and I got there, and it was like a either a deja vu or flashback, just some kind of odd feeling hit me. I looked at the building, and I felt like it was 1984 again. One of the cool, couple cool things about the Augusta Civic Center, it's exactly as it was in 1984. The outside hasn't changed. Uh, they, they haven't changed the name of the building you know, most venues these days, they're changing the name of the building. I'm surprised when I when I got there, it wasn't the uh, Taco Bell Civic Center or something because um, few places keep their history anymore. They sell out uh, the name, but this is still the Augusta Civic Center, and it's the most simple, plain-looking building. It almost looks like a, like a high school or something, you know. It's, uh, it's that plain-looking, just a brick building by itself, but very cool, great sound inside. I went to the website. Um, it's I think fifty. I think I read fifty one hundred seats, sixty eight hundred capacity. But for the Grateful Dead on October eleventh and October twelfth, they sold eighty seven hundred tickets. I figured they figured with the skinny hippies, let's get two thousand more people in there, you know. But it was eighty seven hundred, and I got those facts from my friend Dave Davis, um, who's writing a book on that particular topic, uh, the economic history of the Grateful Dead what the attendance figures were, what the dead grossed. It's cool because nobody's really touched that area before. Um, it's going to be an, an interesting, interesting book he comes out with. We're going to eventually get him on the uh, show here when he gets a little closer to being done with the book. Uh, but thanks for the, uh, for the figures, Dave. The, the tickets were eleven fifty. Um, you know, incredible times, 1984. Dave was at the 1979 show, so they played Augusta three times. They played in September 2nd, 79, Great show, opened up with a jack straw. Uh, music never stopped in the first set. And then uh, uh, I believe it was Terrapin into Let It Grow in the second set. And then uh, just the two shows in 84. And the Grateful Dead became too big to play a building like Augusta after uh, 1984. So these were the last shows. But wow, they went out with a bang on that 84 show. And while I was, uh, I was revisiting this a year ago, um, I noticed on the inside there was a, a plaque for Elvis Presley. Um, Elvis fans uh, paid to have a plaque put in there. A nice, a cool thing. I don't think it was there when when I saw them and when I saw the Dead in '84, but it, it showed that Elvis had played there May 24th, 1977, and it was that was the only time Elvis Presley ever played in Maine. And one other insane fact: when he died that summer, the next night. He was due to play Cumberland County Civic Center in Portland. That's all right, Mama. Jerry Garcia, Merle Saunders, John Kahn, 1973. So Elvis Presley died at the age of 42. 
Uh, when Jerry and the Dead hit the stage in August of 1984, uh, Jerry had just turned 42 a couple months earlier, and he was in the worst physical condition uh, probably of his entire life, well, of his life up until that point. We kind of got used to it uh, being on tour, you know, Jerry show, Jerry putting on a few pounds every tour. Uh, I think it started uh, most noticeably at the end of 82 into 83. It just it was like a normal thing to see him about 10 pounds more each tour. And just he would just stand there. And obviously, if you if you look at it from outside of being a fan, being at the concert, he looked terrible. But his guitar playing was insane. It was so great. Unlike when he actually hit the end of the road in 1995, he kind of looked weak on stage and uh, you could really sense the end was near, but the energy of Jerry's playing in 1984 was still off the hook, even though he would just stand there in one stop, in one spot and just play. It was an incredible thing to see, godlike, you know, is uh, so, so brilliantly unusual. Uh, so the dead roll into Augusta. And, and it's just, it's a blessing that we got 12 more years, or 11 more years of Jerry after 1984, because, I mean, e- easily something could happen into 1984 that could have been the end, like in 1986 when he actually had the coma. That was kind of life-saving, um, almost a blessing that gave him another nine years uh, to keep doing what he loves, and we could do, keep doing what we love, listening to the Grateful Dead and Jerry Garcia band. Uh, so as I was thinking back to the Augusta shows for this episode, obviously I know that the October 12th show, classic show, I go to the tape often. October 11th was like a mystery to me. The only thing I could remember was that it was uh, it was a good show and I was happy with it. So I went back to the tape, took a look at the set list, and then I was like, oh, okay, that's why I forgot it. Um, show opens up with a good shakedown, and then it kind of falls into a pattern of, of less than desirable songs um, compared to what you can get. Once again, the psychology of the Grateful Dead set list comes in here. Uh, end of the first set uh, is Looks Like Rain, Might As Well. They played Might As Well 19 times than the first set in 1984, much more than any other song. Uh, second set is opens with Bucket, Hell in a Bucket, Touch of Grey. Women Are Smarter, Ship of Fools, Playing in the Band. Now, now Playing in the Band is pretty hot from this night, but that's probably as uh, undesirable a four-song start as you'd want to see compared to what you could see. I mean, China Cat Rider was due, Scarlet Fire could have been played. Um, you know, So you, you are sitting out there at the show hoping for these things, and then you get the new songs, which weren't, Played as well as they would be in a few years. Hell in a Bucket, Touch of Grey, Women Are Smarter. Just like it, um, as far as the song list, couldn't have come, come out with much much worse of a list to start off a set. And um, but, but they didn't. They came back, and probably one of the reasons I, I like the show, they came back strong after drums with uh, Dear Mr. Fantasy, Black Peter, Sugar Magnolia. Once again, not spectacular, hey, but that was part of the deal. In order to get a show like October 9th, where you're just blown away by all these different choices in the right spots, uh, a couple times at tour, you'd have to swallow uh, a show that was less than desirable to you, the way the songs were lined up, and it was okay. It was, it was part, of, part of the deal. You're like, okay, we're going to get them the next night. You know, they're saving 
uh, Scarlet Fire for the next night, whatever, however you were thinking about it. Uh, but the the Dead cl- clearly had a pattern of pain, playing the songs. Uh, 11, 11, 11 show tour. You're you're not seeing Scarlet Fire more than three times. You might get three or four China Cats, maybe two or three Help on the Way Slipknot Franklins. So um, they, they they were set in, set in their ways. So it was like if you if you look at Europe '72 and you wonder why people love what they did so much back in '72. Part of it was they had just come up with the songs and there was this great excitement. And the band was just pulling in the right direction and just peaking and exponentially getting better, which you can never, you can never outdo a period like that. If Bob Dylan, Rolling Stones, you, you name the band, six, seven years in, eight years in, that's usually where these great bands are at their peak, and they'll do great stuff as they move on. But you can almost never outdo what you did in that that period. But the other thing which worked and makes those those tapes so great, one night you got a. a a 40 minute dark star next night you got a 35 minute other one and there was there was no might as well no easy easy outs to the sets every night they they gave you uh master presentations uh so so what what happened as the grateful dead evolved and everybody has to evolve is their their set list uh strategy the most interesting experiment ever in music and it wouldn't no none of us would have traded in for anything but every once in a while even when the band was on you would get a show which you know you didn't you know ended up not being exactly what what you wanted but didn't matter it would just almost get you more psyched for the next night it was almost like a sports um outcome to it it was like it was like going to a sporting event almost where you, your your team's playing you're psyched to see your team but they some nights you you lost or or just barely won and um so the stage they played good on the 11th um, but it's, uh, when I looked at the set list, I was like, okay, that, that's why I wasn't, uh, wasn't so excited about it. Cause it, it ended up being like a show that, uh, you would never listen to and bring through, through your life because there's so many other great shows. The October 12th show is completely, completely different. Uh, almost everything they do here is unique and an incredible show, um, with, with just the, one of the most amazing endings, an ending that almost rivals what they did in Madison Square Garden on September 18th, 1987 with that Watchtower Morning Dew. So uh, first set starts off with Feel Like a Stranger, and they definitely set the tone for the night ahead. They get their funk motor, motor rolling with Feel Like a Stranger. Thank you. 
let's get on with the show. Stranger to Open is followed by Must Have Been the Roses. And I always liked, they haven't, they didn't do it a lot, but I always liked Must Have Been the Roses in the second spot after a weird opener like Jack Straw or Feel Like a Stranger. Uh, some sweet singing from Jerry on this night. His vo- voice is pretty strong here. And then the show gets back to the, the funky mode, man. There's definitely a funk thing going on and it carries through for, through the rest of the show. Plus, um, obviously, the Grateful Dead, somebody in the band was thinking, hey, let's break out some things we haven't broke out in a while, uh, getting back to the setlist psychology. Um, and they went back to some reckoning songs that they hadn't played in a year or two. Uh, they played On the Road Again, third spot. Uh, something about Electric On the Road Again was always the sign of a great show. They played it 11 times. Um, between 81 and 84, this Augusta version on October 12th is the last time they ever played On the Road Again. Uh, cool version. Some of the other great shows where they played it at, they played it Alpine, August 7th, 82, Iowa, uh, three days later, 82, Baltimore, 82. Obviously, they did a lot in 80, not a lot, but they, they did it at great shows in 82. Uh, Palo Alto, Stanford, October 9th, 82. Um, so yeah, on the road again, it was almost like a telltale sign that they were, they were on the right, in the right mood, or it could have just been a coincidence thing. But when they played an electric on the road again, it was always in the midst of a great first set on the way to a great show. Um, so that's from, uh, they, they kind of brought it back into the road. They brought it into the rotation from reckoning and another song, which they, they hadn't played Jackaro in two years, I believe since Hartford in 1982, after On the Road Again, they played Jackaro. And, you know, what a great, talk about like a little funky beat uh, with, a, with a folk song. Um, cool, very cool version here, great song. And they, they brought it back for the first time in two years and they kept it in the rotation. Uh, so it was a song that they, they played right up through 95, but they never overplayed it. You know, they would just break it out at the right times, at the right shows. Um, so here they, they had a, a reawakening of, of the Reckoning material, bringing back On the Road again and Jack a Row. And obviously you're out in the audience right now. You know it's a, it's a special night. They're playing cool tunes. Um, in the fifth spot, it's all over now. Another kind of upbeat, uh, funky version. Uh, shows rolling along nice. Um, it's all over now is another song that almost like every song in the set wasn't played often. So they were definitely thinking, Hey, let's do something. Let's be a little different tonight. And then they followed up with Cumberland. Once again, another one of those songs. When you when you catch Cumberland Blues, you know you're catching a good night. Uh, so this is a hot version. The band's you know ripping through it at a good pace. Um, but it's not exactly a year ago. On this date, October 12, 1983, they played Cumberland Blues at Madison Square Garden. And that is the longest Perhaps the best version. The only version of Cumberland I could think that even is in the same league as the one from Madison Square Garden, October 12th, 83, is uh, Europe 72. The one from April 8th, which is, on, which is on the Europe 72 album, kicks it off. That one is sensational. And they did some other great versions of Cumberland back then. Good one in San Diego, 73. So there's a lot of great Cumberlands out there. The one from Portland, not quite, uh, quite in that uh, category. But definitely good, and then the set ends with music never stopped, and hey, I was out of my mind with excitement at this time because music never stopped was definitely one of my favorite songs. Plus, it was rare for like '83, '84, 
even 85. Uh, they didn't play it a lot. It, it kind of fell, fell out of the rotation. You know, they would do it a couple times a year, you know, two to five times a year, something like that, uh, where it had definitely been a, a more popular song in the years before. So this entire first set, you're getting all, all these kind of rare tunes where they definitely said, hey, tonight we're going we're gonna to do something different. A little bit of a short set, but it great nonetheless. It created great excitement. Um, the music never stopped. Um, there's so many hot versions of this. This one doesn't go into that category. Um, so that they get the jam going along, and it seems like they just ended pretty quickly. But then Jerry said, wait a minute. He came back with some shrieking notes, and they managed to extend it for another minute or two. Still not a, like an all contention for some kind of all-time great version or anything, but plenty hot enough to be uh, very pleasing in the time. If you want a great 84 version, check out Harrisburg. Uh, I was at that show. It was uh, June 23rd, 84. Yeah, June 23rd, 84. And Music Never Stopped had a great revival um, after Jerry's Coma. They did it in Hartford. Um, I believe it was March 27th. It was either the 26th or 27th. They played a sensational Music Never Stopped. I was like, my God, Jerry is back. It was, it was like that hot. It was almost like a, a 77 version. And then later in the year, they played a great one at the Philly Spectrum, September 23rd, 1987. Uh, so music had a very powerful uh, rebirth, but it, it was rare in 1984. So that entire first set, very cool um, first set to, to catch. By the way, this, um, this show, you could go to YouTube and you could find video of this show. And obviously they, they um, put the music in, um, you know, it's a soundboard quality, uh, but the video is, it's taken from about the, the opposite side of Jerry. The guy might have been elevated about 10 rows. I think I might have been standing next to him, but uh, really an excellent video. And it kind of gives you that feeling like you're at the show as opposed to a professional video. I mean, the sound is professionally done. Uh, it's matched up with the video. But when you're watching these videos, it kind of feels like you're there and you're actually standing uh, 10 rows in that first section above the floor uh, watching Jerry, which is the area where I like to stand. So I definitely recommend checking out the video. I'm going to put that video and some some of the other versions I'm talking about here on my Deadology podcast Facebook group. Um, yeah, just type in Deadology podcast uh, group. In Facebook, if you want to check it out, I'm going to be putting pictures up, all kinds of stuff from uh, from this re- relating to this episode. Uh, but definitely that video is, is worth checking out because the second set of this is, is incredible. So the first set was great from the, from the standpoint of cre- set creation and building excitement, even though nothing was like over the top as far as, uh, you know, the jamming goes. Second set, another desirable uh, opening to the second set, Cold Rain and Snow. Uh, Jerry singing his heart out at the end, just letting it all hang out with so much soul. Uh, very cool version of Cold Rain. And then uh, they do Lost Sailor, Saint of Circumstance, which really I, I kind of look at it as like a song I crave. Um, maybe I, I, I didn't crave it back in the day when I was uh, in Augusta, October 12th, but it's really one of Weir's great combos. Um, and there's so many hot versions of it. This is not one of them. It's it's good. You know, they're definitely serviceable. Uh, but the reason I'm pointing out that it's not that hot, at this point of the show, you're, you got Cold Rain, Sailor Saint. They follow up with a Brent tune, Don't Need Love. And you just, you can't tell that something 
insane is coming around the corner. Um, it's not like the show is building to some great climax and you could you could sense it and cut it in the air. Like on Madison Square Garden, September 18, 1987, the crowd willed it. You could feel all night that they were building to something step by step, shakedown, women are smarter, terrapin, and it was it was in the air. You know, you could it was tangible. There was no doubt something great was coming. That wasn't the feeling I was, you know, when I was there, I was getting at this show and even listening to tape, it's, you know, it's good. Okay, Cole Rain, Sailor Saint, Don't Need Love. One other thing about Don't Need Love, very, it's, it's a very cool hook, blues hook to that. Um, one day I fell asleep, to, well, after I was watching the video and they, they kept playing the Don't Need Love uh, lick on loop. I was like, damn, that's pretty cool. It's it's a very cool blues lick. I, I wish they would have played the song a little more, maybe added a bridge to the song, developed it a little more, because it's actually, it's one of my, it's become one of my favorite Brent tunes, but you hardly ever hear it because it wasn't played a lot. But um, it's something I felt they could have done. Uh, they could have taken that song, maybe got Hunter involved, added a, a bridge, some more lyrics. That song definitely had some potential, but they kind of just let it slide. But uh, definitely, definitely worth a listen. Cool, uh, cool, very cool blues hook on that man. I, I like it a lot. And then the show. This is where the show takes off. Um, they decide to play Uncle John's band. And as I've mentioned in an earlier episode, it was the um, Oakland show, December 12, 26, 1979, when they brought Uncle John's back into the rotation. Jerry is so happy in that Uncle John's pocket, jamming away. And this version is one of the best versions, uh, just from, he goes off on the, on the first uh, instrumental, and then they, they get to the end, he's going to the other, inst- just going off, man, completely going off. Very cool to watch on the video, too. He's just totally digging in, lost in the Uncle John's pocket. And um, yeah, I think this definitely goes as one of the, the underrated Uncle John's, because in my book, Deadology, Volume 2, where I was talking about the 33 essential uh, jam anthems and rating the the best versions, not particularly one, two, three, four, five. Just mentioning the best versions, I put this one in there. It's it's that hot. Garcia's playing is is crazy on this. And when I was at the show at the time, I realized it was good, but still, I'm not feeling that they're going to do some something incredible on the other side. Uh, but this is really where it starts with the great Uncle John's. This is a top notch version, uh, definitely noteworthy. Uh, they go drum space. Uh, so it's actually Coleraine, Sailor Saint, Don't Need Love, Uncle John's. Uh, that, that's pretty good, especially as it's getting hotter with the Uncle John's. Um, they go into space. And a few minutes into the space, um, Jerry picks the playing reprise. And, you know, you definitely get that playing reprise. And the only thing was they haven't played playing yet. So what's going to happen is going to be the first time they ever did the ending of playing without ever starting it. They had played play in the night before, a pretty cool version. But I, I, once the show's over, it's closed. So this is just the playing reprise out of nowhere. And I think they, they had a master plan, maybe as they did in the first set. I don't know if it was discussed or there was just something in the air. They wanted to do something different. Um, so they come back with the, the first time they do playing. And after uh, Jerry states the, the kind of the melody line of playing, they go off for about five minutes into a, a nice return, you know, as if they're returning to playing, just taking their time. Uh, Jerry's pecking away. Very. This is my favorite play in reprise right up there uh, with Alpine Valley. I also like the one from the Philly Spectrum, 8674, an old school uh, play in reprise. 
uh, um, where they do that play in begonias back into play in. But this one is awesome, man. It just gets the crowd so fired up. Um, at this point of the show, just hearing them go back into playing at that point without ever starting, it just brought the Civic Center alive. The Civic Center was on fire. And you could just hear we're pounding the rhythm after the, after they sing the playing part. The the excitement was was incredible. We didn't know what was coming, but it just it woke woke brought everything from like a six or seven to a ten. Uh, you know, it was blowing the the roof off the Augusta the Civic Center, and then it was hard to even grasp what might be coming. But they went back to the Uncle John's reprise, which they sometimes they would just play Uncle John's and never go back to the reprise. So. Right after playing, boom, right back into that Uncle John's reprise. And that's where everybody was like grabbing each other, just like, this is freaking amazing. It, it was, I, I get chills every single time I listen to it. Um, just a, incredible. So they go and play in Uncle John's. And anybody who has any sense of history at that time with, with what the Grateful Dead have done, you're thinking Morning Dew. Um, last time they had done an Uncle John's play in Morning Dew was Cow Palace, nineteen seventy four. Uh, they did, they, they did, they did that combo playing Uncle John's Morning Dew, Uncle John's playing. Uh, they did it in the Winterland, November tenth, seventy three. Uh, they did a maybe the best version of them all in the UCLA Pauley Pavilion. Uh, that was November seventeenth of seventy three, and then the Cow Palace in seventy four. So potential history is here. And the crowd is on fire. And anything but Morning Dew would have been a letdown. <laughs> uh, you know, just, just like at that garden show from 87 after they played Watchtower. It was just Morning Dew was there, thick and heavy. And you, and the part of the excitement of getting into the Uncle John's at that moment, you just you knew it was coming. You, were, you know, and, and of course, they went into the Morning Dew. And just such a, such a great moment. And I'm gonna, we're going to take about... Uh, a five six minute uh, listen here to that uh, the playing reprise into Uncle John's in the beginning of Morning Dew. Um, you'll get chills as you listen to this. There's no no way around it. It's such a great piece piece of music. And from where I pick up in the playing, they've already been about five minutes into this playing reprise. Just to give you an idea of how good the playing reprise was on this night. Enjoy.
An unexpected thrill seemingly materializing out of nowhere. Playing in the band, into Uncle John's band, into Morning Dew in Augusta, Maine, October 12, 1984. As I mentioned earlier, that was done three times prior, twice in 73 and once in 74 on the West Coast. So that's the only time it was ever done on the East Coast. And it was the last time those songs were strung together. So you never knew when the when the magic would strike. And on this 1984 tour, um, just the, the October 9th show in Worcester and this show, uh, beyond anything I could have dreamed of prior to, prior to the tour. That's how good it was. Uh, so the Morning Dew, excellent version. Jerry singing surprisingly strong for 1984. Uh, great first instrumental. Uh, the second instrumental, the, the, uh, Garcia comes out almost too excitedly like he did in Madison Square Garden uh, in 87. At that show, he, he came out like in crescendo mode and somehow kept it going for three, four minutes, an incredible morning dew. This one's amazing in its own way. It seemed like he'd hit these excited notes early, and then he realized, okay, let me break it down, take it easy, and build it up. And it's a very hot morning dew, one of the best i ever seen. Uh, maybe not up there with the, the garden, but pretty close. It's a great morning dew. Um, I think it was the one of the better ones of 84, but once again, 1984 was an excellent year for morning dew. So on the, they came around the East Coast in April of 83, and they played three dews, um, Hampton, Philly Civic Center, and Providence, and each one was better than the last. Providence, his singing, Jerry's singing was off. Uh, he definitely, his vocals were hurting at that point. But if you want to hear a great morning dew jam, that's top five. It's it's that good, the Providence one. And this Augusta one, they definitely did it justice for the moment. Great morning dew. So the crowd's going nuts. And, and when you hit a high point like that, walk off the stage, man. They just, they, they got off. No dragging anything uh, through the mud. Uh, no no attempt at another song. Let's just get off the stage, come back, do the encore, and call it a night. And they probably would have went for Good Loving after Morning Dew because that's what they did for the encore. But Good Loving, it, it was even more celebratory in the encore slot. Once again, rare, a little rare to hear that in the, in the encore slot. So it was almost like that was their objective on this night to break the set list psychology of what we typically do. You know, uh, if you follow the usual set list kind of unofficial rules. A China Cat was due. Um, this was on this night. They went out of their way to kind of do everything different, to, th- to throw everything up, and you know, give those people who follow them, a snutty deadheads, man, a, 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 an incredible thrill and a great evening. And it, it definitely was. So um, then the next nights in in Hartford on the 14th and 15th, they got the uh, China Cat rider estimated eyes, and then the following night to Scarlet Fire. So things kind of returned to to normal. Um, and then the, 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 the final show of the tour, Syracuse, that was one of the best one, best ones on the 20th. They did that killer Jack Strada in the set. Uh, so I'd say the top three shows from this tour, Worcester, October 9th, the October 12th, Augusta, and that last show at Syracuse was incredible. The only one I missed for the tour was at my brother's bar mitzvah for that day. And they played the, the best Jack Strada you'll ever hear. Uh, but Hey, I've enjoyed it a million times over on tape. Uh, so that's the cool thing. We could always go back to the tapes and uh, and hear them. Uh, so that's that's my Augusta psychology set list thing. And now it's time for the album of the week. Didn't forget about that. 
This week's album is from the great Chicago bluesman Otis Rush. And I first got turned on to Otis Rush a few years back. I mean, I heard a few of his songs on B.B. Uh, King's Bluesville on the radio, um, but I never had any of his albums uh, over the years. And I was reading uh, Carlos Santana's autobiography, um, a long, it was a pretty long autobiography, very interesting. I liked it a lot. And he, several times he mentioned Otis, Otis Rush in there and what an influence he was and how great of a player he was. So, of course, I had to dig out a notice uh, Rush album, find one on, uh, on my Amazon Music. Um, and I struck gold with the first one I picked. Otis Rush, All Your Love, I Miss Loving, live at the Wise Fools Pub, Chicago. And I'm not going to go into the, the album too deeply. This is more of a recommendation to go listen to it than, uh, than I'm going to be re- really getting into it. But wow, man, this is just a home run, man. <laughs> Incredible. Uh, opens up with a great song, Please Love Me. And the thing about about this album, just, you know, I, I read a couple of critiques of it, and the critiques are just horrible because w- what they critique is the best part of this. I would never re- remaster this. This It sounds like you're at the bar. You have a bottle of beer in your hand or whatever your preference of libation is, a whiskey, whatever. You're at the bar. The music just rings out with this just kind of loud, powerful. You're trapped in a small bar, which is where the you know the, the Wise Fools Pub is a, a modest sized uh, or was. It, it doesn't exist anymore because I would make a field trip there. Um, but uh, the the Wise Fools Pub, small place, great sounds. Um, you know, so it, it's perfect. This recording. If it didn't say pub in the title, you would feel like you're at a pub. However, they they made it happen. It's just, it's like that intense, that powerful. And the third song, the title song, All Your Love, I Miss Loving, probably the most famous, definitely the most famous Otis song. Um, Stevie Ray Vaughan did a cover of it. Uh, but one of the interesting things about about this song is Carlos admitted that he kind of lifted the, the melody line from it uh, for Black Magic Woman, which I never heard before. And he, he got to listen closely, but you know, it's a nice submission on Carlos' part. He, he's like, I, he pretty much said he just took it right from uh, Otis Rush because he was so moved by the by this song. And another artist, you know, once I heard this, I was like, obviously Bob Dylan um, for one one of his uh, this two thousand nine album, um, uh, the, the song "Beyond Here Lies Nothing," the opening song of that album uh, is definitely. Uh, taken from all, all your love, I miss loving, and Otis is just the singing, the playing here, just it's so incredible, man. It's hard to believe that this powerful Chicago music took place in, in a tiny little pub. But yeah, you've been there before. You've gone to see these great bluesmen's in, in places in New York City, and um, you know so. Uh, yeah, if you want to listen to a great album and feel it like you're at the pub. Uh, this this is the one to check out. Otis is singing is so great, guitar playing so strong, and he was at the height of his powers in 1976, which was a pretty good year for the Grateful Dead as well. But uh, hey, man, that's it. That's uh, episode four of season two, Augusta '84 and Grateful Dead setlist psychology. I'm your host Howard Weiner. I'll be back next week, kicking around a few ideas for next week's show, but. Definitely be back with another podcast next week. My uh, website, tangledupintunes.com. 
And thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed. Peace out.